Gracious Father, we thank you again that you have granted us the privilege to meet, to corporately worship you. We ask this morning as we come together to meet you through the truth of your word that um, you would hear our hearts cry, that you would hear our confession before you, that you would hear our repentance. Uh, for the Christian, repentance is not a one-time act, it is a lifestyle. For we are ever, um, we, we, we continually face the reality uh, of our sin, this side of glory. It is ever present in our lives. And it hinders our intimacy with you. It hinders our love and tenderness towards one another. It hardens our heart and draws us away from you into a coldness and a selfishness. And so we come to confess our sin before you. We come to um, seek your righteousness. We come to seek your cleansing, your unifying love, your tenderness, your everlasting care for our souls, that we might know you more fully, that we might love one another more sweetly, and that your name might be magnified among us. Hear our cries and continue to mold and shape your people according to your glory and for our good. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're going to rejoin the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at just two verses this morning. Acts chapter 17. And we're going to be looking at verses 30 and 31. And there I want to spend a little time before we move forward in Acts. Dealing with the reality of repentance. And here we see uh, Paul calling the Areopagus to repentance. The name this morning's message is Paul calls the Areopagus to repentance. So look with me there, Acts chapter 17, at these two verses, verse 30 and 31. And I want you to feel the weight of these uh, two powerful verses that we find here, verse 30 and 31. Look there with me. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men, or to, excuse me, to men, that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, these two verses really contain a, there's a, a closing here and we see a response there from uh, uh, a few there in, in uh, Athens to Paul's gospel proclamation. But by all uh, intents and purposes, these verses really conclude Paul's preaching of Jesus Christ there at the Areopagus. It is culminating in Paul rightly calling this council to repent. Now, as we take this in Scripture, that, that call to repentance is a global call. But here is also, mind you, very specific in context. He's calling this council to repent. And he's calling to repent based on what he's given them. Now, we again, you know, um, we're, Luke is giving us a condensed version of what was said here. But by and large, he's given them the creator God. 
This is your creator, God. You're accountable to him. You're guilty before him. Repent. And of course, the proof of that being the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who will judge all men. Now, this is a little precursor, but uh, not just any old man will have right and authority to judge all men. This is a unique God, man, we're talking about. And resurrection was taboo in the culture, right? I mean, Apollos railed against that concept long ago. And so it's deeply ingrained in him. And Paul just asserts it. He asserts it. This is the fixed truth that reigns over all mankind. When we think about repentance, and again, Paul uh, just um, asserts that reality, that need, that necessity of repenting. We think about it, we want to rightly dig deeply uh, and better understand this call to repentance. Really, we must, to do that rightly, we must understand the rightly the concept of God. We must rightly view God when we think about repentance. So a, a high view of God gives us a proper view of self. Mark talked about that a little bit just a few moments ago in our morning study. We rightly want to see ourselves. Um, we see ourselves in light of God. When we have a high view of God, that gives us a right view of self, and it kind of settles us down because in our fallen nature, we're, we're prone to be a little haughty. We're prone to be a little uh, uh, a little better about ourselves than we might uh, well do. So we have a, a proper view of ourselves based on a proper view of God, and we have a proper view of sin based on a proper high view of God, and thus we have a proper view of salvation based on a high view of God. Now, with that in mind, I wanted to let Job just kind of settle and set the standard for us and kind of permeate the atmosphere this morning for us, set the tone of our study with um, of these two powerful verses. So I want to take uh, Job 42, 1 through 6, and just let this language permeate over us this morning. And this is after Job, after, after Job, the dust has settled. And Job has been before his God after all that he has gone through. And now we find him here before his God and he sees his God in a new light. After all that his God has taken him through, now he sees his God in a new light. And this is the language that he speaks back to God here. Job speaking back to God. Verse one through six. Now I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent, and dust and ashes. Job, after all his trials, caught a glimpse of the majesty of his God and it brought him to repentance. It gave him a proper view of self, a proper view of sin, and a proper view of salvation. And the same is true for every one of us. With that in mind, I want you to look there at verse 30 and see the cornerstone of grace. The cornerstone of grace. Look with me there in the beginning of verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. Overlooked. 
But let's not go too far. What exactly does that mean? Well, God's purpose of grace for humanity necessitated that a just and a holy God delays the destruction of a wicked world. Amen? It's a delay. Praise God, that's good news for us. It's a delay. Having overlooked. Now, that does not mean that God has excused sin. This is not, this is not a taking the sin of a wicked world and shoving it under the rug. Hello, Martin Boyce, cleaning up your room. This is not shoving all the toys under the bed and pretending they're not there. There's not excusing sin here. What is happening is God is deferring punishment of the willful ignorance of idolatry. Willful ignorance of a willful heart displayed in idolatry. That's that rightful judgment of that reality upon a fallen world is being delayed. Give me an example of a time in history where that was not delayed. We've seen the judgment of God before. That makes the beauty of this, the graciousness is the cornerstone of the graciousness of God displayed right here. Where have we seen the righteousness of God displayed in space and time? The flood. We have seen the judgment of God upon wicked man poured out. Wicked man in space and time has received what he deserved. We've seen that. That's a reality. But now we are in an age of grace. You're looking at here Paul's delivering uh, of, a, of, a, of the reality of an age of grace to the Areopagus. You're in an age of grace. And immediately he says, repent. For you're guilty. And judgment's coming. So the, the flood is an example of God stopping this overlooking of sin and punishing, rightly punishing, justly punishing a sinful world. But here we have God now actively overlooking sin and rightly understand that it's just a delay of his rightful judgment, rightly overlooking sin of the Gentile nations who willfully sin in ignorant idolatry. Acts 14, 16. We've looked at this already. It says, the generations gone by, he permitted all in generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. So that's a willful overlooking. They're going their own way, which is an active, full-blown sin against the Holy God, and he permits it. In other words, there's an allowance here. There's an allowance in his creation in space and time. There's an allowance for them to go their own way. But the very language that we've already found in Acts is that their day is coming. There's a reckoning coming judgment is coming so he passed over them without punishing them he didn't destroy them he allows them to walk in ignorance you know why that walking in ignorance that we see all around us even to this day is a demonstration that mankind fallen mankind left to his own devices will actively rebel against god 
mankind in and of our own capacity, with our own wills, in all our intuition and intelligence, as we are fallen innately at the core, sons and daughters of, uh, of Adam, we will never honor God. In this time that God has given for mankind to go his own way is a demonstration of that reality. So what we see every day, the vileness of our modern culture, of our enlightened culture, is a demonstration of God's biblical truth. Mankind, left to his own devices, will continue to rebel against God and revile against his holy name. There must be a special revelation from God to fallen man before fallen man repent and believe on his God. Left to his own devices, he will continue in disobedience before God. So God intended this purpose to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to make atonement for fallen man according to his own good pleasure. Without the coming of Christ, there would be no repentance among man. And all that we see in this time where scripture tells us that God is overlooking sin is the evidence of that reality. Least Christ comes, there can be no repentance. So the sin of the Gentiles were not excused or forgiven outside of God's holy standard of salvation found in Christ alone. Now we have to hang on to that. There's no, there's no overlooking and there's no, over, and there's no forgiving outside of Jesus Christ alone. That's the standard. There's a delay of rightful judgment. And in that delay, there's a gracious opportunity for repentance. But that comes in Christ alone. There is no other way. There is no other offer of salvation. There is salvation in no other name. Now, this is a vivid picture of God's grace, patiently lavished upon fallen man. You look at that language overlooked is one of the most glorious words in Scripture. That is grace. You are seeing a demonstration of marvelous, marvelous grace, patiently lavished upon undeserving sinners. So delayed judgment does not mean that God has excused sin. What does our catechism tell us, children? Is God angry with the wicked? He's angry with the wicked every day. Every day. He is angry with all sinners and will one day rightly punish all who are outside the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And the text has an implied warning here. This is an overlooking, but judgment day is coming. That's in there, that's implied. Now, the driving thrust of this language, though, is that there is the encouraging part of this. That there is an opportunity to repent. Yes, there's a warning. Yes, judgment's coming. But here's the thrust of this language. There's a window of time to repent. That's the encouragement. That's the hope. That's the grace. That's the cornerstone of grace. You have a time. 
You're in a time. They're telling the Areopagus here, you're in a time where there's an opportunity to repent through the God-man, through the atoning work of the God-man, Jesus Christ. You have a window of hope. Now I want to say to you this morning, that window is still open. That extends to this very moment. Judgment's coming. Christ will return. And when he returns, when he returns, he will return in judgment. But we're living in an age of grace. That's the, that's, the, that's the hope for us. That's the encouragement of our evangelism. That's the great message we have to carry. There's hope. You're here. You're walking this planet in an age of grace. There is evangelistic hope. If you're here and you're outside the saving relationship of Jesus Christ, there's hope for you today. You're alive. You're still here. You should be in hell. God should accept every one of us in this room. We should all be in a literal hell right now. We don't deserve this grace. We don't deserve to hear the gospel. But it's given to us. There's hope. In every and all of our context that God has given us, in every environment that extends out to us, we have this message. All the people that we interact with and all the borders and boundaries and rules and regulations that our ever-increasing secular culture has erected before us has no authority and no power over this great encouraging message we have the gospel and the gospel goes forth right now in an age of grace where there is an opportunity to repent and believe on Christ. And we carry that message to everyone we can, we can speak to. We can tell them with full assurance there is an opportunity to repent. You don't deserve it. You should be in the literal hell. God should have killed you already for your sin, but he hasn't. You're alive and you're breathing and there's a chance to repent. Turn and believe on Christ. And that's the hope, isn't it? All who repent and believe on Christ will be saved. Amen? That's the hope. So let's think about that a little bit. Let's look at the call to repent. Listen to the language here at the last part of verse 30. So he has overlooked this time of ignorance. And God here in verse 30 is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And the should there is really, uh, it comes to us, English is really not definitive enough. This is a commandment. All men everywhere are commanded to repent. So Paul tells the Areopagus here, they, they should repent from their idolatry. And if they will repent, if they will be, they will be forgiven the cross of Jesus Christ. Repent and you will be forgiven through the cross of Christ. So what does it mean to repent? That's the question, right? Repentance is necessary. Now, there's been language all throughout uh, church history, even extended to this day, uh, among Christian culture that says repentance is not necessary. That repentance was um, the, 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 the latest, the, the oldest formulation was really that, that repentance was only necessary in the Old Testament. So that belonged to Israel. Now in the age of Christ, repentance is not necessary. But that is a far cry from what Scripture gives us. Scripture tells us that repentance is definitively necessary. It is a must. Without repentance, there is no 
forgiveness. So what is repentance? What does it mean to repent? Well, simply put, repentance is to turn, to change your mind, to change the way you think, and to change the way you think as a result of a recognition of and a sorrow for the probable reality of your sin. That's the starting point. It is a changing of mind that comes from the recognition of your sin, that you are guilty before God. Repentance has no life, has no meaning, has no context outside of this pillar of your recognition that you are guilty. You are a born sinner uh, and a, a practicing sinner, guilty before a holy God. That recognition gives birth to the turning, the changing of one's mind. This is a hard issue. This is not uh, um, an intellectual exercise. This is not uh, theoretical navel picking. This is a hard issue. It's an issue of who you are at the very core of your being created in the image of God. It's a state of your heart. Repentance is an outworking of saving grace. Repentance cannot exist outside of saving grace. It is an outworking of God's saving work, God's supernatural, sovereign, saving grace that comes in and takes your heart of stone and molds it into a heart uh, that's alive. It's alive and beating for the worth and majesty of Christ. So an outworking of that, an overflow of that, the only natural response to true, to true saving faith that is a work of God, a work of grace of God granted to you, imputed into your life by the power of God, the outworking of that, the inevitable outworking is repentance. If there is no saving faith, there is no true repentance. But where there is saving faith, where God has come in and done a supernatural work in your life and granted you life, snatching you out of death and bringing you into life, spiritual life, there is a act of repentance that follows that. A true sense of sin coupled with the knowledge of the mercy of Christ. So repentance is turning from sin to Christ with a hatred of sin and a desire to obey Christ. Repentance is a change of mind that hates sin and wants to obey Christ. Repentance is recognizing sin is evil in the sight of the holy God and telling God that you are sorry. It's an act that overflows from the changed heart. The transformed heart. And it's admitting that you need forgiveness and asking for forgiveness. You know, a big barrier to genuine repentance is just that. That we don't understand that we need forgiveness. That's the barrier right there. But where there is saving faith. When, saving, when there has been a, a transformation of one's heart, a supernatural transformation of one's heart by God, there will be repentance. There will be a recognition that you're guilty before God and that you need forgiveness and you will have a sorrow 
a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You're sorry for your sin and your guilt before a holy God and you turn to Him, asking Him for forgiveness, knowing that He has the capacity and the desire to forgive sinners, believing on His atoning work and turning to Him in repentance and faith. And there you will find a perfect Savior. So, if you are here and you are outside a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, I plead with you, run to God. Run to Him and ask for forgiveness. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, the only true Savior. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, really speak to this truth of repentance that flows out of a changed heart by the work of a sovereign God. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance. So there's godly sorrow. The sorrow that comes from God always produces repentance. It does so without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There is a worldly sorrow, but it will never produce genuine repentance. It will only produce spiritual death. Now, what do we mean by that? Let me just, let me just hold it for a moment. What do we mean by, God, by, by godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow always leads to genuine repentance. The changed heart uh, lived out and expressed in repentance and a changed life. One that now hates sin and longs to obey Christ. Worldly sorrow, in contrast, is being sorry for getting caught. Being sorry for the consequences of a certain sin. Having genuine remorse. Crying, regretting, being uh, um, broken over the consequences that might come as a result of a given sin. But just that superficial regret will never lead to repentance. In fact, that left alone to its, to its own demise will lead to spiritual death. Amen. Only godly sorrow. Where you are sorry of, of offending your holy God and your sin aches in the depths of your soul because you have offended God and you're guilty before him. And it is you have a woe on your life and you must be made right with your God and your heart aches for his namesake. That you have smeared and slandered his glory. That's a godly sorrow. And it always leads to repentance. Any other uh, sorrow is a worldly sorrow. And it leads to death. Listen uh, here as Paul goes on with, with the Corinthians here. And by the way, this is uh, 2 Corinthians. After he scolded them in 1 Corinthians. He's even kind of anguished over it. He's like, man, was the language too hard. But the Holy Spirit was working there. And this was uh, 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 to have a Marxism, a, a messed upness in that church. <laughs> it was a bad deal. And here they are. Back with their apostle. Letter number two. Probably possibly three letters here. Uh, but uh, we have two that has been given to us and preserved for us by the Holy Spirit. So we find out gloriously in 2 Corinthians 2 that they repent. And here he's commenting on, listen to the language. Listen to what it does in this church. There's genuine godly repentance here. He says in verse 11, For behold, what earnestness, this very thing, repentance, this godly sorrow has produced in you, 
What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What longing. What zeal. What avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrate yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now, that is glorious language. Let's just kind of pick this apart a little bit together and see the fruit of repentance here found there among the Corinthians. So look me first at that word earnestness there in verse 11, earnestness. That means a desire to fully please God. That's what Paul's talking about here. You have, now, now you have repented. And what that means is you have a full, you have earnestness in your life. There's a full desire here to please God. You consider your sin as a thief of God's glory. Is that true of you? Because if you're here and you're outside of Christ, you have one hope in your life and you're living in an age of grace. You have an opportunity to repent and believe on Christ. If you're here and God has saved you, God has reached into your soul and granted you that saving grace that produces repentance, then you must know this. If it is genuine repentance, it is a lifestyle of repentance. My goodness, we come here and start together in corporate worship and we start our time of the preaching, the worship of the preaching of God's word with what? A prayer of Confession. Why do we do that? We are sinners and we're a corporate body that God is saved by grace and called into himself to worship him corporately, personally, but corporately. And as he has called us to do so, we are identified as in unity with Christ through the blood, through his atoning blood on our behalf and therefore unity with one another. And we all have a commonality. Those who are genuine members are, are, are genuinely saved and uh, brought into membership. And there uh, anyone is welcome, but that is the members of the church. And we have that in common. And we have the fact that we still wrestle with sin. And so part of our reality is that we live a lifestyle of repentance. Someday, praise God, will be in glory in our eternal state with heavenly bodies and there will be no sin. We'll be free from the presence of sin. Now, although we are walking here freed from the condemnating, condemning power of sin, we're not free from the presence of sin. It's a struggle with us. And so we come because it's a picture of who we are, unified with one another. We're those who are confessing our sin before our God because we're living a lifestyle of repentance. We're living out who we are. Yes, our sin debt is paid in full. That's exactly why we are living a lifestyle of repentance. Because as we meet that sin in our lives, we want to be sensitive to it. We want to have an earnestness about that sin. Well, we see it as a thief of God's glory. This God who has lavished us in saving grace. Who has molded us and shaped us after himself in saving love. That we might be his light into this fallen world. He's made us worshipers of him. Not for a moment of time, but throughout all eternity. He's made us his own. We're his, adopt we're his adopted children. And now in this reality, we are living lives of repentance. Awaiting that time when we're free from the burden. An everlasting glory, free from the reality of sin. But now it is essential, a vital part of who we are. 
Repentance for the believer is essential. Least you grow cold and comfortable in your sins and you begin to excuse them and you no longer see them as vile and thieving of God's glory. Here we're reminded of the earnestness of the Corinthians and their repentance. And also I want you to see there the vindication. There's godly sorrow and that godly godly sorrow produces vindication. And what does that mean? Well, Psalm 31 puts it pretty well. It's a lifestyle of repentance. Again, it's it's a searching. A searching of oneself. We see that in the psalmist in the language of Psalm uh, uh, 31, or excuse me, Psalm uh, uh, 139. Verses 23 and 24. And there David says, search me. So he's concerned with his sin. Search me. Search me, O God, and what? Know my heart. What a, what a beautiful reminder for us as Christians. Search me and know my heart. Why? Because he's concerned about his sin. Man, we can just we can just justify it, right? We can just push it away. We can just ignore it. We can just get used to it being folded into the everyday workings of our lives. But hear the psalmist and be encouraged and be reminded. He says, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So vindication is literally kind of think of it this way, seeking to continually live pure before the face of God. So it's a checking yourself. It's a daily checking yourself where, where your your actions, your behavior is indicative of who you are in Christ, where you're sensitive to it. Where you can go day by day and at the end of the day, you can come home and you can say, I have nothing that man nor God can bring against me today because you're actively living a lifestyle of repentance. Search me. Know my heart. But also notice there he says, what indignation. What indignation. That's a hatred. Why is Paul bragging on them for hatred? Aren't we supposed to be loving? So what's he after here? What great indignation. What's good for us to hate? Is it good for a Christian to hate anything? Our sin. All sin. All sin everywhere, but it starts with us. I don't want to confine that to your own sin. We're we're to hate all sin. All sin is to be abhorrent to us, particularly our own. So we're cultivating a hatred of sin. That is a lifestyle of repentance, a cultivating of a hatred of sin. And then he says, what fear? And that fear is cultivating a tender heart that kind of articulates with that hatred of sin, a tenderness towards sin and a tenderness towards how we live. Now here, let, let me give you an example here. When we think of, about our fear in relation to 
living a lifestyle of repentance. Our fear is this. We fear aspects of our lives that might hinder our intimacy with God, particularly in living out our repentant heart before him. Here's one for you. This fits well in our context. Our busyness. Our busyness. What are our priorities? We want to fear that we let other things, let's use busyness, interfere with our pursuit of intimacy with God. You with me? That's what he means by fear. He's telling the Corinthians, you fear. You fear wandering off and being distracted by the world. And that's a good thing. So what's a fear business that keeps us from seeking the Savior's face and worshiping him fully? We're to fear being too busy to cultivate our spiritual gifts and our calling. Amen. Somebody. You're all given spiritual gifts. You all possess them. You will use them wisely or you will not. Did you know that they can deteriorate? You can use them abusively. They're not magic beans. You can use them recklessly. You can abandon them and let them rot away. They never go away. It's just like exercising a muscle. If you never feed it, if you never nourish it, it gets soft and flabby and ineffective, right? I'm 54. I know all about that. It's the same reality. You can neglect your gifts. You can misapply them. You can absolutely abuse them. You have them. They're given to you by God for your good and for his glory. You can get too busy to rightly use them. Be fearful of this. Be fearful of finding so many things that you have to do first before you answer a calling that God has placed on your life years ago. Be fearful of that. That's an ignoring of a life of repentance. Be fearful of it. And what about longing? My, what do we do with longing? Well, it's seeking God's kingdom and righteousness. It's again, it's prioritizing. These, these are, are obviously inter, interlocking, but there is an emphasis here. Longing is a real thing. We long. We're made to long. God created us to long. Doesn't C.S. Lewis do so well with that? We're created to long. We're worshipers. We're going to worship. We always talk about our culture in this language. It's ever increasingly pagan, or, or, or excuse me, uh, uh, not pagan culture, but it's just, it, it's moving away from God as, is, as if it's moving away into a void. You know, and, and a term we'll often hear is we're ever increasing secularizing culture, ever increasingly becoming more secular. Well, that's a nice term. But let's get real. That means, uh, let, let me give you the definition of that. We're becoming more pagan. That's the bluntly the way to put it. We're becoming more pagan because God created us to worship. We're not, just because we're moving away from God doesn't mean we stop worshiping. Oh, we're worshiping. We're just worshiping pagan gods. He made us to worship. And there's a longing in our hearts. And we must rightly apply that. That's a responsibility to, for the worshiper. And it's tied up in our living out a lifestyle of repentance. 
Repentance brings us closer to God. A lack of cultivating our repentance as believers moves us further away. We're always longing for something. Repentance helps us rightly long for our God. And finally, I want you to notice zeal. What about the zeal? Let's think about the book of Acts, man. We're in Acts. What about Stephen? That's a nice name, isn't it? What about Stephen? You think back, you remember back to Stephen? Stephen had some zeal, didn't he? What do you have among men? Great reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, full of grace and power. There's some zeal. What about the church in Acts? What we're, what we're what we're in the midst of right now. What do we see? What about the overall zeal of the church? Man, they had zeal in preaching, didn't they? They had some serious preaching. You know, my, my sermons get a little lengthy. I'm just going to bring you back to Acts. Man, they had long, long sermons. They listened for a long, long time. But God just dropped out the window. That's a long sermon. They preached a long time. They listened a long time. They fasted. They prayed. They were charitable. They had great courage in the face, in the face of persecution. They were, uh, uh, they were diligent in their witnessing. They lived simple lives, but it was marked by zeal. It was marked by passion and repentance. Follow this through Acts. If you haven't been tracking with this, start tracking now. You're going to see a lifestyle of repentance among the believers in Acts over and over and over. So cultivated, Christians live a lifestyle of repentance. It's not a one-time act for us. And know this, there is a great and glorious promise in Scripture. Repent, and the dreadful expectation of judgment will be removed. That is the hope. That is our gospel message that we carry. When we go to someone and we carry the gospel to them, we tell them, repent. And the dread that's in your soul, no matter how you try to erase it and deny it and cover it up with the garbage of this world, I know it's there, you know it's there, God knows it's there. That'll go away. That fear of judgment on your soul, that rest as the weight of God on your life. The righteous wrath of God hanging over you. When you repent, That's glorious. It's gone. There's no more dread of that expected judgment. It will be removed. It's gone. That is a glorious promise of Scripture. You'll be delivered from the coming judgment because of the righteousness of God imputed through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Know this. Know it. And also know this, that true repentance is humbling. Amen. It's humbling. If you have true repentance, if that's true of you, that has humbled you to no degree. The sinner becomes overwhelmed at being saved by God's sovereign grace. All true repentance brings us to a place of humility. True repentance tears down foolish pride. And how glorious that is. Listen to the Proverbs here concerning pride. And know that repentance eradicates it. 
That's why it's important for us to have a repentant lifestyle. It keeps us uh, 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 free and on guard against the, the trauma of pride, the harmfulness, the sin, the hurt that's bound up in pride. A repentant heart keeps us far from it. Proverbs eleven two: when pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. Proverbs 16, 8. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 28, 25. An arrogant man stirs up strife but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. Look, let me just add this to that last problem. My goodness. If you run into a Christian that is constantly clamoring about himself, he's in trouble. If he's constantly telling you about all the things that he does or can do, how wonderful he is, he's in trouble. You need to recognize that. And if it's you, you need to recognize that and repent. There are no such thing as arrogant, self-absorbed Christians. They don't exist on the planet. That's a contradiction. And when you find brothers that only talk about themselves, warn them. Admonish them. Pray for them. Call them out. And take note here. God's now declaring to all people, all people everywhere, they must repent. So this is a command. It goes out and it holds sway over all men everywhere. Again, we're living in a day and age of grace. The gospel is to be preached and offered to everyone. Everyone. That's what's being said here. We're in an age of grace. The gospel is to be preached to everyone. Repentance is a commandment. That commandment goes to everyone. The word of God, the command to repent unto salvation is a requirement that holds sway over every person on the planet. It's true of everyone. Grace goes out to the nations. The man to repent is extended to everyone without exception. When he says everyone here, that means everyone, all people. What are we to do with this command to repent that extends to all nations? Well, hold this. This command to repent helps us understand what to do with our sin. So it's a command in that regard. It tells all guilty sinners, what we are to do with our sin. We're accountable. This gives us instruction on what we're to do with our sin. And by the way, people do just about anything with their sin except what? Repent of it. We're to call them to repentance. Man, they'll hide it. They'll cover it up. They'll deny it. They'll justify it. They'll do just about anything with it except repent. We're to call them to repent. There's one thing that you can do with your sin. One thing that a holy God that created man tells us to do with our sin. Repent of it. Repent and turn to Christ. 
There's one hope. There's one right thing on the planet that you can do with sin. Repent of it. So repentance is the only useful thing that we can do with our sin. And it frees us from the sin debt. It makes us right with the holy God. Repentance is the only thing that will fix our sin problem. And our sin problem is innate within us. We're fallen. It's the only thing that will fix it. Saving faith is inseparable from repentance. Know this. You can't repent without saving faith and you can't truly uh, believe without repentance. God has woven them together. If there is saving faith, there will be repentance. That's how it's marked. That's how it's marked off by God. You want to you have evidence of genuine faith? It comes with repentance. A repentance of sin unto God for salvation and a lifestyle that displays that throughout all of life. It's a changed life marked by repentance. And right now, God allows repentance. He's holding off His judgment. He's holding it off. You're living. Those who are around you are living. Those who are outside the covenant grace of Jesus Christ are living. And they have a command to repent over them. And you have the privilege to call them to repentance. They're still here. They should be dead in hell. But they're here in an age of grace. You're here. If you're not a genuine Christian, confess your sins. Ask for forgiveness in the name of Christ. Believe what the scripture says about repentance. Allow the leaf of that truth to draw you to repentance. And repent and believe on Christ. Dear Christian, call people to repentance. It is the only hope. There's only one thing that can be done to free you from the bondage of sin. And that is to repent. To repent. To turn from sin. Turn to God and be forgiven. Delivered from your guilt of sin. Repent or the soul will be eternally lost. Now I want us to see... Lastly, here in verse 31, this overarching reality that puts the command of repentance in in its context. Verse 31, because why should we repent? Why are we commanded to repent? Because God, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now divine judgment will take place on an appointed day through an appointed man. And that man is the unique God man, Jesus Christ. Judgment will come. He will judge the world in righteousness. That is a universal judgment. So that means the entire world. That's, that's all the nations. He will rightly judge. That's a universal final day of a ju- of judgment. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. You hear that? That's works. Every man according to his works. So, ooh, that, made, that raises the question. That, what do you mean there? So that's his works. Every man is going to be judged. Let me back up here and start, start with this. That's one judgment. We're not talking about multiple judgments here. 
We're not talking about, talking about different judgments here. They're not separate judgments. They're not multiple judgments. They're not judgments at different times. There's a day. There's a day, and everyone's going to be judged in that day. You'll be there. Just as sure as you're sitting here, you'll be there. You'll be judged by God. And you'll be placed in one of two categories. You'll be either placed in the category of sheep, or you'll be placed in the category of goats. But you'll be judged. That day's coming for you. You will be there. Everyone will be there. There's one judgment. You're a sheep or you're a goat in that judgment. Christ is coming. And he's coming in judgment. And here it says, every man will be judged according to his deeds. That judgment is based on good works born out of faith in Christ. Or lack of good works born out of no faith in Christ. Goats, sheep. See that? That's what's being said here. That's what's going to come our way. Matthew 25, verses 31 and 33, sum it up like this. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates sheep from the goats and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. No different judgment, no separate judgment, no multiple judgments. One, you're a goat or you're a sheep. And you'll be judged in Christ and you'll be judged according to your deeds. Deeds done, born out of good works uh, through the saving work of Jesus Christ or no deeds at all. Left, rightly condemned in your sin. A day is appointed by God for judgment. This is the day of Christ. This is how scripture refers to it uh, as the day of Christ. When we hear the day of Christ, that's what uh, was being referred to here, the judgment day. The day of Christ coming, coming in judgment. Romans uh, 2, 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's the day of Christ. And it's coming. It's a sure coming day of judgment. Praise God is the, is the beauty of this overlooking, sinking into your hearts. It's the preciousness, is the, is the reality of this day of grace rising up in your hearts. How glorious of a time we are living in. The clock is ticking. It's ticking. Day of judgment. Is coming. Judgment occurs on that day when Christ returns. Judgment occurs on an appointed day by an appointed man, Jesus Christ, <coughs> the divine Son of God. He's no mere man. No mere man can judge the world. This is He's the divine Son of God. Divinity is implied here. Daniel 7.14 spoke about it long ago when he spoke about this man pointing to Christ, this one to come who will judge the world. And this is what was said by Daniel in his vision. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men every, of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That belongs to Christ. He's speaking of the Christ that was to come. He's speaking now of the Lord Jesus Christ who has come 
born a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a vicarious death on the cross to pay the sin debt of all who repent and believe on him and will return, resurrected into glory and will return in judgment. You're living in a day of grace. You're living in an age of grace. But he's coming back in judgment. How glorious of a time you're living in. We talk about the great generation of our culture. We talk about the ages. We talk about the millennials. Uh, we talk about Gen Z. We talk about all these uh, uh, elements and aspects of culture, the times we're living in, and the difficult times that we're living in now. You're living in an age of grace. You're living in a time where you can call men to repentance, and repentance is still offered. Amen? How glorious a time we are living in. But there's a judgment coming, and it's based on one's relationship with the man who will judge. Good works are those who reflect our relationship with Jesus Christ, a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Those who are found on judgment day in Christ will be those who have naturally exhibited good deeds that flow out of that relationship. Those who are found outside of Christ will be those who are rightly judged by a holy God where there is no goodness because there is no saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. In order that, listen to Paul now, Paul's looking forward now. In order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's looking forward to it. He's longing for that. This is what he's after. This is, this is emblematic of that lifestyle of repentance. Here's a man, sealed, paid in full, an apostle of Christ. And what is he doing? He's looking to attain that resurrection in Christ. Because he understands to be in Christ is to have a lifestyle of repentance. It's the proof, really. It's repentance is a lifestyle because we have a guaranteed Savior. We have a resurrected Savior. Now, there's two promises here. This is proof to all mankind, not just Christians, all mankind, that he's coming back. He's coming back in judgment. Here's the proof he was resurrected. That's a proof of two things. Our salvation, amen, and a sure judgment upon the world. Two things are, are proven in the resurrection. We celebrate and we celebrate it for all its wonder and, and, and majesty and that it, it is the guarantee of our salvation. And so it is. And, and glory be to God. But there's a there's a there's a book into that. It is also the guarantee of the judgment of a wicked world. He will come in judgment. God has raised him from the dead as a guaranteed judgment on all those outside of Christ. He has raised him from the dead as a guaranteed of a guarantee of salvation for all of those who are in Christ. Resurrection is a proof of Paul's message here. He doesn't have a message here without the resurrection. We've talked about that prior. We don't have a message to carry here in this age of grace without the resurrection. But it's true. It's the proof. There's an empty tomb. And we have an age of grace. That's why we can carry the gospel. That's why we call men to repentance. So what do we do with all this? Well, Paul just asserts the resurrection's proof here. He just asserts it. Right? And shows it, so should you. It is the standard. It is a fact. 
It is God's proof that all that Jesus claimed about himself is true. It is the proof of everything. All that we have, all our hope and salvation, it is the proof. All our command to call those to repent and believe on Christ is predicated upon the resurrection. It is true. It is true. You just assert it. Now, there's been a lot of asserting in our culture lately, has there not? There's been a lot of assertions made. A lot of political assertions, a lot of social assertions, a lot of uh, um, social wrangling. But there's one assertion that matters. And is this. Jesus Christ is the resurrected one. He is coming again. He will return in judgment. Every person on the planet, out of every generation, will be judged. You'll be found a sheep hidden in Christ through his atoning blood, or you'll be found a goat, rightly deserving condemnation of a holy God outside the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that message now has a context. It's a time that you're living in. This is called the age of grace. Call men everywhere to repentance. This is the cornerstone, the pillar of our our evangelizing. Our command is to call people to repent and avoid righteous judgment of Christ. Repent and possess the joy of salvation and forgiveness, the weight of judgment lifted off of you. Where there is repentance, there is the citizenry of the kingdom of God. There is possession of knowledge and truth. Isn't that glorious? In a time of fake this and fake that, you have truth. Isn't that glorious? It's a possession of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God Almighty takes up residence in you. That's unthinkable, but it's true. It's true. It's possessing the perseverance unto eternal life. You're hidden in Christ. You cannot be removed out of his hand. You will persevere through all this world has to offer. Whatever your grand enemy Satan might throw at you, whatever trials and tribulations might come your way, comes to the sovereign hand of God who will bring you through in his perseverance into his glorious kingdom to the end. Amen. That's salvation. And there is no dread There is no dread of judgment for you. How glorious. Oh, that it will be true. Is it true of you? Oh, how glorious. No judgment to be dreaded. Is it true of you? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for these two power-packed verses here. What a glorious message we have. What a time we're living in. What an opportunity to carry your glorious gospel. There is time. None of us deserve it, but you've granted it. You are overlooking our woeful idolatry. The the idolatry of this age, you are overlooking it for a time. So that you might appoint 
your glorious grace to fallen men through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a glorious message. Would you, would you stoke the fires of our heart with this reality, with this consciousness, with this awareness of the times that we are in? I've heard so much talk about being keenly aware of the times we're in that we might rightly respond to this political uh, um, maneuver or this political wrangling or this political jargon. And all these secondary matters uh, uh, do play a role. They extend to us from your sovereign hand. But there is an overarching, glorious reality to the time that we are living in. It is a time of grace where you offer repentance to fallen men. Oh, that that would saturate our souls and that it would stir and direct our lives. That it would fuel our passion and that it would consume us with our duty before you and that we might live out our ministry to your glory. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.